Dr. C here. Before we begin, I'd like to make sure that you're aware that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp is a leading provider of online therapy, and they provide video, phone, or live chat sessions with a licensed professional therapist. It's affordable, and you can connect with your therapist within 48 hours. Now, as a special offer to our surviving narcissism listeners, they'll offer a 10% discount for your first month of professional therapy. All you have to do is go to betterhelp.com, that's betterhelp.com slash surviving narcissism podcast. I know that many of you would find online therapy to be quite life-changing, and so go to betterhelp.com slash surviving narcissism podcast, and many thanks to the people at BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Surviving Narcissism Podcast with your host, Dr. Les Carter. This episode concludes season one of the podcast. Dr. Carter will return with new episodes at the end of the summer. For now, you can go back and listen to some classics and join us on YouTube, where we post videos every Monday, Thursday, and Saturday. In today's episode, Dr. Carter is joined by Dr. Craig Malkin to discuss rethinking narcissism. Hey, Team Healthy. I'm so glad to have you with me once one more time again today. We've got a really interesting interview. I have Dr. Craig Malkin. He's a, a clinical psychologist. He's an author. He's a, a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. Uh, Craig, your book is called um, Rethinking Narcissism, which I find to be a fascinating topic, and I want to get into that. But this is something that you've been uh, involved in for quite some time. So first, I want to say thank you for being with me, and I appreciate you uh, being with our audience. Oh, you're so welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Les. Well, and you, uh, you're a busy man. You, you teach, and you have a private practice, and you have a media presence, and write. Uh, tell me, how did you get involved in this whole topic of narcissism to begin with? My wife, Jennifer, we both have a wife named Jennifer. That's that, correct. Right? My wife, Jennifer, teases me that my answer to that question sounds like the punchline to a bad psychology joke because it all goes back to my mother. But it's true. It does all go back to my mother. I, yeah. I first got interested in narcissism when I was an undergraduate and I was getting my psychology major. And I saw Narcissus in the intro psych textbook with a description of narcissistic personality disorder underneath. And I was floored and fascinated at the same time and confused because it, in some ways it perfectly fit my mother as I knew her then. Yeah. Because she could be critical, dismissive, devaluing. I mean, she once accused me of trying to steal money from her because my wife and I moved her from their their my parents previous home after my dad died to here in massachusetts and we had to raise money by selling some of their stuff she's like where'd all the money go she's british very okay. strong english accent and i was just like oh my god i can't believe she's saying this so that was the mother that i knew at that time um and but when i was younger she she and I had a pretty close relationship. I kind of took care of her. In retrospect, I could see red flags now. Yeah. But she was kind. She was a big cheerleader. I wouldn't say that she would help us talk about our feelings. 
So I was trying to reconcile these two experiences of who she was. And that's what got me into it so much so that when, by the time I got to graduate school, I forgot this until recently, my first uh, study that I wanted to do was on narcissism and it fell apart. So okay. I did it on self-esteem instead. I kept a toe in it so, so that in my advanced training uh, on internship and postdoc, I, my mentor was one of the foremost experts on narcissism, a guy named Andy Morrison. Okay. I know him who wrote uh, shame the underside of narcissism and i just kept doing things like that i specialized in personality disorders on my postdoc did a stint as a chief psychologist and then around 2013 i got interested in how do all the different forms of narcissism come together how do we understand them along the spectrum and so i got together with a colleague stuart quirk and another colleague shannon martin and started putting together what became the narcissism spectrum scale Okay. And that became the basis for rethinking narcissism, the book. Okay. How did you, uh, how did you come up with that title? Rethinking narcissism. There were so many misunderstandings and, and myths about what narcissism was. One was, uh, and whenever I talk about narcissism or narcissists, I always like to start with what it isn't for this reason, right? Because especially and even now but especially then when i wrote it most people when they hear the word narcissism or narcissist they think of like a, a vain preening primping boastful braggart which it can TV be types which it can be but not all narcissists care about looks or fame or money and some can be extremely quiet so getting focused on that it's a bit of a caricature we miss signs of difficulty that have nothing to do with vanity or greed so that was one reason I wrote the book. The other reason is I wanted to help uh, people understand what all the different forms of narcissism have in common. That was a, and a big rethink about it was that zero narcissism uh, was good uh, because one of the things that came out of all that research was it turns out that people who, who don't, in the research, the core of narcissism is called self-enhancement. Uh, think of it as slightly rose-colored glasses for the self, also okay. known as the better-than-average effect. So these are people people who self-enhance. If you ask them privately, they're not announcing it in a survey to compare themselves to their peers, even if they're not very special, unique, or exceptional uh, compared to their peers, they think they are happy, healthy people do the self-enhancement. <laughs> that is really self-enhancement concerns of the core of what narcissism is. Okay. And what I discovered in the research is people who don't do that at all, um, I, I started thinking of them as what we now call echoists. Okay. Drawn, drawn from the myth of Narcissus, echoes right, and nymph right, who right. fell in love with Narcissus, right? And had no voice of her own. So that one of the big rethinks was um, how you think about the spectrum. And instead of starting from bad to worse, I was like, well, let's start at zero and go to 10. And now we can integrate some, some understanding. Well, what is this weird thing where people have a little bit of narcissism and it seems to come naturally in happy, healthy people? Where does that fit in? Because mm -hmm. the concept was out there for the longest time, including in research, but it was stranded. It had no connection. And even in understanding, it was conflated with self-confidence and self-esteem, but they're not the same. So when you uh, when you use that term narcissism, what kind of traits do we look for? How would you define it? 
So if you think of narcissism, the core of it, another way to understand self-enhancement is that I think of it as the drive to feel special, exceptional, or unique compared to the other nearly 8 billion people on the planet. Okay. That is the core of narciss what narcissism is, and that includes this idea of moderate self-enhancement, that slightly rose-colored glasses for the self. Okay. And if you think of it that way... I was going to say, when you use that word compare, uh, it, it, there, there's kind of a, a, a competitive element that goes along with it, and better than and... Yes, and in, and in normal, healthy, functioning people, this used to go by the name of the better than average effect. Okay where if people felt adjusted, this goes back to research by a, a psychologist named Shelley Taylor, who first introduced this astounding finding uh, that contrary to the prediction that mental health was all about seeing things realistically, the self, the world, the future, she amassed this body of evidence that showed, no, these happy, healthy people don't see things realistically, they see themselves and they're experiencing this overly self-inflated positive light. Mm -hmm. Slightly, you know, they're not, the rose-colored glasses aren't so dark that they're blind to themselves okay. and the needs and feelings of others. Okay, so you, you mentioned that it's on the spectrum. Um, how far down that spectrum would a person need to be so, so that we could say this has become pretty problematic? Uh, what kind of things do we see there? So th this is where we get into the terms against, if you think of narcissism as that trait, pervasive human, human universal trait that exists to some extent in everyone and is measurable or survival strategy. Narcissists, by definition, are people who are above average in that trait, either on measures or in clinical observation. We clinicians sitting in the room with them say, this person is higher than the average person in this way. Mm -hmm. What we know from the research is they may or may not be disordered. Um, no, some narcissists don't reach the threshold of narcissistic personality disorder. So if you picture that spectrum from zero to 10, you can see narcissists are probably gonna be around seven or, seven or right. eight. And as you approach nine or 10, now you're seeing pathological narcissism, people who addictively self-enhance. They're so driven to feel special, exceptional, unique. They demonstrate the core of pathological narcissism, which I call triple E, exploitation, entitlement, and empathy impairments. Okay, perfect. I mean, I'm I'm tracking so much with what you're saying. In fact, that, that sounds a lot like some of the things I say. You used a little different way of putting it, but uh, wonderful. Um, in your mind, uh, and uh, I know you've studied this so much, how do you see narcissism developing? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it hardwired into someone? Is it taught? It's definitely like most personality formation, a combination of nature, nature and nurture. We have this really great study by a psychologist named Phoebe Kramer, who actually did a longitudinal research project over the course of 20 years. And what she discovered is that as early as preschool, we're talking kids four or five, you can see what she defined as these early precursors for narcissism, for un extreme narcissism, bullying, always wanting to be in the center of attention. I mean, these, these are little tykes right. showing this, um, being melodramatic. And so it's clear from that, and of course there's also twin studies, this is a classic thing in our field, separate twins at birth. I have twins, you're a twin. 
right? Separate twins at birth. And if one of them is narcissistic, does the other one turn out narcissistic? Well, it turns out, yes. So there's some component of that. But you trace them over time, and sure enough, those little kids turned out to be more narcissistic unless they had a kind of parenting where their parents or caregivers spoke to them about their feelings, uh, provided structure, consequences for their yeah. mistakes, and, and modeled how to talk about feelings that created what's called attachment security. Yes. Those kids didn't grow up extremely narcissistic, even if they showed those early signs. So it, it can be hardwired, but with some, uh, with some assistance, I, I call it the training of emotional competence, uh, where you, you teach kids to identify their emotions and regulate it, et cetera, and then tie it in as they grow older into their values and principles and standards. And then you teach empathy and all of that. Yes. So it, what you're saying yes. is if you catch it early enough, yes, we can uh, kind of cut it off at the gap. So absolutely attachment security moderates narcissism. Yeah. Okay. Uh, would you say that by the time a, a, a person is in well into their adult years and they show a lot of these narcissistic characteristics, would you say that at that point, these are individuals who just basically didn't learn to introspect much. They don't have very good and well-developed self-reflection skills. It, that's often the case. Again, go back to the spectrum. So if you think along that, that spectrum, there, is, there are going to be people who are high in traits, but they have some self-awareness um, and they have some capacity to understand themselves, their experience. But what we know from personality disorder research whether it's narcissistic personality disorder or any other personality disorder, is that there's this inverse correlation between how many of these unconscious defenses or survival strategies, in this case, we're talking about self-enhancement motives, maintaining a sense of feeling special, exceptional, or unique. It doesn't have to be in positive ways, right? But depending on how entrenched that is, the more those defenses go up, and this is what you see in personality disorders, thick character armor, the more that capacity to reflect goes down. It's something yes. that's called the reflective self-function. They're inversely related. And then you can also just even go back to the origins of one of the most popular images that I, we mentioned earlier. It's what I call the narcissist we all know and loathe, mm -hmm. which is the outgoing, extroverted, overt narcissist. Right. Used to go by another name, which was the oblivious narcissist. Do you remember okay. this? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oblivious narcissism because yeah. they're so unwilling to acknowledge problems or feelings or vulnerability, what's actually going on with them, right? That self-reflection that they disavow it at all. They entirely, they live in denial and denial is one of the worst predictors of, of whether or not people can change or whether or not they can develop this capacity. You mentioned uh, just a moment ago, you used the word unconscious, and uh, I know this is something that you talk about quite a bit, that uh, much of narcissism, particularly when we're talking about the older ones, um, is unconscious. Uh, help me understand where you're, uh, where you're coming from with that. Uh, so, so in other words, they, they don't even know what's going on anymore. No, absolutely. And this is what we see. So again, just think of unconscious as an, the unconscious in a very simple way. This is where people are denying parts of themselves, feeling states, experiences, distancing from them, 
disconnecting from them because in the past they were associated with something negative, sometimes traumatic. In the case of narcissism, narcissists often grew up this is, with this experience that unless they were maintaining this sense of, of uniqueness or specialness, high achieving, for example, or in the case of covert narcissism, where, their pain, where they were expressing their pain really loudly, suffering more than anyone else in the room, right. struggling more, more grieved, right. right? It doesn't have to be positive again. But what they learned is as long as they don't have that, if they don't have that sort of specialist, they're not seen at all without that exceptionalism so that their feelings don't matter. So what happens is they develop these survival strategies to, to, to deal with the, the learned fight or flight response, a fear response to if I dare go into these vulnerable feelings, I'll be attacked, shamed, abandoned again. And then it becomes practiced, a way of coping again and again, iterations over time until it's almost part of muscle memory. That's really what we mean by, by unconscious coping. Um, you mentioned your beginnings with understanding narcissism. Uh, I, I had a, in my doctoral uh, internship, um, uh, my supervisor did a lot of work with anger management strategies and things of that nature. And I picked up on his and, and I had his blessing and all. And I wound up as a young buck, as a, a young therapist, uh, teaching a lot of anger workshops and, um, anger in and of itself is not a, a wrong emotion. It's just, it, it's there. We can manage it correctly or incorrectly. It all depends on where we're coming from. And as the years would go by and I would pick up on, uh, the, the core ingredients that, uh, that helped define people who had lots of conflict management difficulties and anger management difficulties. These were the people that had the high control, the entitlement that you mentioned, the lack of empathy, those kinds of things. And I began realizing, okay, you're coming in here because you have these, um, uh, presumed anger issues, but really we're, we're talking about narcissism here. And there would be so many times when I might point out to someone, you know, what you just did was highly controlling or how you managed that stepped all over someone else. Can we modulate that? And they would look at me like I had three eyeballs, like, no, that's not it. They're just idiots. And when, when, uh, when you talk about so many of their patterns being unconscious, it, it what's glaringly obvious to the rest of us, yeah. uh, it, they don't get it many times. No. No, such a great point. This is so what's interesting, too, about that is that uh, people who are narcissistic often know what they do. I mean, they might deny it because they're getting defensive and they don't want to acknowledge it because then they might have to change it. But they but this is so clear that there's this measure now called the single item narcissism scale. Okay. You know about this where it's just a single item and it's. It's to what extent do you agree with the following statement? I am a narcissist. Okay. And it turns out that people who are willing to agree with that, they actually score pretty high on these measures of narcissism. These other, it's actually a pretty good measure. Okay. So, and this is often the case because people who are narcissistic say, well, yeah, sure, I'm arrogant. Sure, I'm selfish. These are good things. They valorize it. They think it's a <laughs> yeah. Good thing. So they might be aware, but they don't know why. So when somebody comes to me, I still work with many people. I have a handful of people still with narcissistic personality disorder that I work with. And when they come to me early on and we're, say, talking about a moment where they were contemptuous with their wife, right? 
what do you think was going on when you said to your wife, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. As usual, you, you, have, you don't have a clue. Like, what, what do you think was going on there? What they're not going to say is, well, I was feeling small and diminished on that, the inside. Exactly. And, and so in order to handle that, I went on the attack and made her feel small and diminished so I could feel bigger. They're not going to say that. They're going to say, right, well, she pissed me off. At blame shifting or yeah. victim shaming. We have terms yeah. for all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So well, the, they don't know the why. The why is part of the work. What What is actually causing this in me? Uh, oh, that is so uh, straight on. I, I love talking to somebody that is really in the, uh, the trenches there working with them. On our website, survivingnarcissism.tv, we offer various courses. One of them is entitled, This is Me, Establishing Boundaries Despite the Controllers in Your Life. Inside each of my courses, I break it down into modules, and then each module consists of various lessons that have a video, written materials, and questions for personal reflection. And inside This Is Me, we talk about uh, defining who you want to be and then staying inside that definition. We discuss assertiveness skills, how to stay strong without being defensive. If you would be interested in, in enrolling in this course or any of the others that we have, go to our website, click the courses link, and you'll receive all the information for how you can enroll. I hope you would find them to be quite helpful. And now back to Surviving Narcissism with Dr. Carter. So would it mean then that these, I mentioned anger and uh, contempt and things like that. Would it mean then that when you have somebody that has this strong unconscious element there, that they're far more prone to being reactors and uh, you know, they'll just pop off because they, they don't have enough internal strength or they don't have that filter system that they're uh, uh, running their uh, reactions through. That's absolutely what it means. Um, again, depending the more extreme the narcissism is, as we're approaching pathology, the, these defenses are going to be very entrenched. What does that mean? It means that normal feelings of vulnerability, sadness, fear, loneliness, that we should be able to turn to people and express in some way, this is what attachment security is, fill them with dread, fill them with anxiety, they have a strong fight or flight reaction. So internally, with under experiences that as human beings we run into all the time, like making a mistake or being caught not doing something well in a moment, all these red light signals are, are going off inside of them, largely out of their own awareness and then activating these self-enhancing responses. That by definition is this emotional turmoil, this dysregulation we also know because there's so much being suppressed, those feelings, those states of self that aren't allowable because again, they fear they might be attacked or abandoned or criticized like they were when they were younger. The more people suppress those feelings, we can see on involuntary measures, there's churning, there is chaos going on inside of them. Their blood pressure goes up, their pulse goes up and outside they'll say, I'm fine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if you were to say, um, tell me what fears you're sitting on right now. Forget it. Forget <laughs> it. The work is to be able to talk about those fears. Yeah. You know, and they they'll, they'll say, well, I'm concerned. Yeah. I, I'm concerned about where this conversation is going. Do you think this will help me? That might be an answer. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it, it's so interesting to help people uh, read their external behaviors and then uh, see if you can help them uh, know what it's attached to underneath. For example, you mentioned being defensive. Well, when you're defensive, the, the implication is you feel threatened. Uh, and when you feel threatened, that means, well, there's a fear that's there. And you use the word dread. And so uh, I noticed that you responded to your spouse there in that um, uh, defensive kind of way. What is it about that that, uh, that threatens you so much? And again, I guess when, uh, when you're dealing with somebody who's just all in uh, down at that seven, eight, nine level of narcissism, it's like, no comprende. I, I don't know what you're talking about. So you know what does work, and this is part of the work that I do to help people get in touch with those responses. I, I, I say something like, let's move from content to process, because content is what you do, the choices you make, what people see in the world, process is what's happening inside of you. When you were interacting with your wife and you said that, what was happening in your body? Often they can answer that question and say, oh, I felt my, my stomach tighten. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now you have a building block to start, actually start to talk about these vulnerable states that come up. Yeah. Uh, do you find that many uh, of these individuals can actually go into that space with you? The kind who come, there's this bit of a self-selection process, right? Because again, there's this question of, you know, how self-aware are people? Anyone who comes to see us, they're self-aware enough to pick up the phone or contact me and say, I think I have a problem. I'm blowing up my relationships. I've, I've had people call me up and say, I feel like I've been a monster all my life and I'm getting old. I want to change this, right? There's, there's some self-awareness there. So already anybody who winds up walking in my door, they have some willingness to look inside. And so your, your task is to latch onto that and try to tap into it as best you can. Absolutely. See, there's another element here too. Uh, and you mentioned it very briefly, uh, the shame, uh, that they're mm -hmm. sitting on it. And again, I'm, uh, for most of them, that's something that's, uh, very unconscious. Um, uh, mm -hmm. and, and again, one of the ways that I determine if a person is sitting on a lot of shame is to try to, uh, observe, well, how much shame do you place onto other individuals? Projection. Exactly. And, exactly. and, and so, uh, when you see that that's something they do over and over, putting guilt trips on individuals, highly critical, the implication is they have their own unfinished business or to use the word you used, uh, just a moment ago, chaos. Um, what, what do you find uh, down at that level, the shame level, what kind of, uh, uh, triggers can, uh, can cause a, uh, a narcissist to, to struggle with that internal shame, whether they're aware of what's going on or not? Well, again, it, it goes back to their experience, right? That they have grown up over and over again, that if they have vulnerable states, if they have a need, if they have a need to depend on people, especially that they are, they might be left alone with that need and it's somehow bad. Yeah. And so they develop this sense of badness. Again, it becomes buried under the efforts to overcome that. Okay. That's what the that's what the addictive use of self-enhancement is. It's not that I'm feeling small and worthless inside. It's not uh I'm actually big and important, or my needs are big and important. So it's an attempt to get on top of that withering sense of shame that comes up in a false way. It, it, 
Yeah. And so the grandiosity becomes a shield, whether it's positive or negative grandiosity. No, no, it's not that I'm nothing and, and and my feelings don't matter. It's like they're big and they're important and actually the most important thing in the room right now. Now, one of the things that we hear from people who work uh, with narcissists is that they'll say that many narcissists have themselves been exposed to trauma. Uh, what do you think about that? Is this um, trauma-based? It's not entirely trauma-based or not 100%, but I would say to, to a person, everyone I've worked with has had some experience of either emotional or physical abuse. The people I work with have had narcissistic personality disorder, but it doesn't always come out that way. So really what needs to happen is you have, remember genetics and environment, we've got this inborn temperament, a difficult temperament tending towards aggression, conflict. In fact, on all the measures, when you look at these personality traits that are grounded in biology on the big five, as it's called, one of the most popular measures of personality, All people who are narcissistic score high on something called disagreeableness. Yes. That's it. The, the, yeah. the ocean acronym, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Openness to experience conscientiousness, extroversion, introversion, agreeableness, Agreeable. and neuroticism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, and then ocean. neuroticism, yeah. Yeah. So people who are narcissistic tend to score high on this disagreeable okay, aspect, yeah. right? And then help me back to your question. I got distracted by ocean. Well, I, I was asking, are they trauma-based? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, 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 you know, if they then, if people of that temperament then grow up in an environment where they don't feel safe turning to others when they're in vulnerable states because of abuse, they can develop narcissistic personality disorder. But it can also happen that there's a, that the caregiving system, the parents, this is, this is a kid with a difficult temperament and they need help. They need resources to keep that kid on track. And without that, now now you have an attachment insecurity experience and the parents haven't done anything wrong. They just don't know how to handle the kid. I have a granddaughter who's almost five. And from time to, you're talking about temperament type. She's, she, she got lucky. She's super sweet and friendly and and engaging and all, but from time to time, like a little five-year-old child, uh, she might say something a bit too abruptly, like, no, I don't want to do that. And one of the things I might do is I might say, well, honey, it sounds like that's something that upsets you. Let's talk about that. And then let, let her say it. And then it's like, well, when, when you want to talk about that, do you think that maybe you can use a tone of voice where we can feel comfortable in sharing with each other? How would that be? And I mean, she'll pick up on it. And it's cool when you see that, but that goes back to something you were saying earlier. Um, uh, If you have any of those tendencies, we have to train it in, uh, train the alternatives into a child. That's what I call the, uh, the training of emotional competence. And so I'm assuming that um, many of these uh, people who later on in life display their narcissism, didn't really have a lot of that redirection toward the healthier alternatives. They haven't. Phoebe Kramer's research confirms that, and just my experience over time talking to people about their their histories and what happened to them growing up, there wasn't a model. Often control was used instead of compassion. Yes. So in contrast to what you just described, which I call firm empathy, yes, because you're sticking to what's appropriate, but you're also trying to understand what's going on with the kid. Yeah. Right. Now take a kid with a difficult temperament maybe even more difficult than what you're describing. Like, no, I don't want to 
you you do it or something like that right all right, right. and like what is wrong with you yeah just get away from me you disgust me right do, do these people as they age get to a point of no return where they're so mm. entrenched that you know by the time they're 43 years old and in your office it's like well we have a whole lot of unlearning uh, to uh, that we have to do i mean what's been your experience with that let's see in terms of age most of the people who have come to me it's such a great question really have been in middle age i've never seen i personally have never seen so many elderly um who comes to me with this and what we do know is that for the most part two things happen with personality disorders uh, if somebody starts to build a system of, of in their life you know so if they are ceo and they build a, a firm a company that basically worships them it's right. going to make them worse their defenses yeah. now they have an endless source of supply if you will because they've created a world that provides it um, but also what can happen is people age and they start facing limitations in themselves, their narcissism spikes and they, they become more rigid and they, they have more of these reactive, angry responses. Um, I would say that's probably the majority of the yeah. time. But what's interesting is in the research, sometimes what happens is people wind down. You're, you've seen, have you seen this research? People age out of the diagnosis. Well, actually, uh, you mentioned my twin brother. Uh, he's a forensic psychologist and, and he's, he's after you show me some studies that, uh, you can sometimes mellow out of it almost. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just, um, um, you know, one case to the next, uh, some do and some don't. Right. Absolutely. But I think what's happening there is, um, if a lot of the sort of exploitative reactive behavior is driven purely by aggression, if that's yes. not true of all personality disorders, even, even narcissism, it takes energy. So as we get older, <laughs> you know, like, you don't have as much energy, like you, <laughs> you maybe don't want to get all that yeah. reactive or feisty in that moment. I think that's some of it. There's some yes. of the kind of a cooling down that happens. Uh, you would hope. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let, let's talk to the person that, um, that has to live with that individual, that narcissistic mm. individual. And uh, maybe they have a whole lot of that subconscious element that they've not tapped into. And you, you're living with someone, whether it's uh, your partner or a family member or someone that you work with, and you can see it plain as day and you realize they're not catching on. And I don't yeah. think that the, the trends are going in the right direction. If you have someone in your world and you realize that they seem to just keep going back into that narcissistic pattern, what would we say to that person who has that to contend with? Yeah, two parts, I, I think I would, in answering that question. I used to talk more about coping and that is certainly something we talk about but there's a core of the coping that i think is always always has to be there but first i always review with everyone the, the three stop signs as i call them because it's very easy to get even caught up on what are the signs of narcissism or what are the signs of other problems and i'm less concerned about that when i'm trying to help somebody than helping them focus on is there abuse are they safe because abuse is driven by so many sources, not just narcissistic personality disorder. So the three stop signs are abuse. Is there emotional, physical abuse? And we could talk about those types, but I'm just going to say in general, right? Psychopathy is a pattern of remorseless lies 
and manipulation so much so that you catch the person in it and they don't even flinch this is veering away from narcissism into the dark tetrad right, psychopathy right. territory where there may be very limited capacity ever to reflect and change this it takes a lot of work as i'm sure your your brother can share with you yeah. from his work with people in the I, prison I can tell you stories yeah yeah and then then the third is denial what we mentioned earlier if a person yeah. can't admit to any problems at all they're not going to change doesn't matter if it's narcissism or substance abuse yeah when those three stop signs are present regardless of the problem and the person that you're dealing with i always recommend get support get help get your own psychotherapy somebody to help you because you're probably going to need help distancing figuring out how to leave very often especially if it's something like a romantic relationship yeah but but even with that or short of that if you're just having to still interact with them i always help people get in touch with their own healthy anger yeah. we're talking about anger the anger we're talking about with narcissists part of the reactivity is they're afraid of those vulnerable feelings easy way is to use anger is as a shield to get on top of those small feelings to feel big with anger yes. that's defense adaptive anger has wired in needs connection to ourselves importance of our feelings and and wired in what are called action tendencies to stand up for ourselves set limits and boundaries that's so important because a lot of the mistakes that people make in dealing with those with somebody who's extremely narcissistic or a difficult relationship is they question themselves think about what they can do differently instead of thinking i'm mad i don't like this i don't like how they're treating me it needs to stop and even if you don't express that to that person directly, you need to feel it yes. in order to set those limits and boundaries. And Dr. Malkin, one of the things I'm not hearing you saying is that when you have somebody that's strongly narcissistic, what you need to do is try to convince them to quit doing it. Uh, no. In other words, what, I, cause what I'm hearing you say is no, uh, each one of us needs to go into our own interior, that's which right. is what the boundaries is all built upon, having a that's real right. strong definition of who you are from the inside out and, and remaining consistent with that, despite that other individual's unwillingness to flow with you. So, uh, so it, it, it means, okay, if, if they have a lot of unconscious motives, well, I want to be conscious about who I am. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to be conscious. To... Absolutely. Yes. I need to know my, my defenses against things like anger. Yeah. Right. And fears that I'm selfish. Part of yeah. echoism, the defining feature of echoism is a, is a fear of being narcissistic, seeming narcissistic in any way. They're yeah, afraid so of being many, a burden. So many but, times uh, people will say, well, if I'm, if I'm too strong or too firm in, in stating myself, then I'm, I'm just being selfish. And there's a huge difference between selfish and self-preservation. Exactly. Uh, just like you were saying, I need to stand up for my convictions or express my boundaries and what I uh, am willing to go along with and what I'm not willing to go along with. And, uh, and so let's make sure that we frame it properly there. Exactly. And it's a hell of a lot easier to do if internally you can feel, well, screw this. I don't like this. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you don't say it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's some of that healthy anger you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And it is good to have the support too, where somebody can come along and say, well, I don't feel the need to invalidate you. Uh, so uh, having a support base is, is so necessary. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, do you, do you have most of this in that book, uh, Rethinking Narcissism? Uh, you, I do. Yeah. I cover yeah. the entire spectrum, the different kinds of narcissism, 
more yeah. in-depth ways of coping in the workplace and in close relationships definitely cover the three stop signs well here on our uh, our uh, surviving narcissism channel we refer to ourselves as team healthy uh and uh i say dr c drc stands for dignity respect and civility and that. uh that's that's a bit of a contrast to the narcissistic pattern right yes so, it is uh, uh, let's let's go in that direction well Go ahead. I just want to say, like that, that is something that that people who are narcissistic needs help need help developing is dignity feelings. Yeah, contempt isn't about dignity. Yeah, entitlement isn't dignity. So, hey, just real quickly, uh, yeah. uh, one of the things that I like to say that's not in the textbooks, but I say narcissism actually represents a manner of life that's absent of love. And uh, it, it's uh, it's a non-love style of of being. Uh, would that uh, correlate with where uh, with where you're coming from as well? One hundred percent. I often say, to the extent that we can depend on people for mutual care, comfort, and love, we will not defend, depend on feeling special. Right? It's an addictive, self-soothing strategy to cut people out of the equation. Yeah, which I don't, is not I don't love. need them. No, it's not love. Dr. Craig Malkin, I'm so pleased that you spent the time that you have with us here today. And once again, the name of the book is Rethinking Narcissism. Is there any other, uh, you, you have your own website, right? Uh, I do, drcraigmalkin.com. I do have a YouTube channel, okay. Dr. Craig Malkin. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Craig Malkin. I try to make it easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not make this complicated, okay? Everything I got is surviving narcissism, and uh, whether it's podcast or YouTube or uh, Facebook, Instagram, all of it, same same title. You're in the same yeah. thing there, okay? Perfect. Okay, and and uh, you're a very busy man, and I, I appreciate you taking your time out of the the time out of your schedule to be with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. Okay. And uh, once again, Team Healthy, uh, Dr. Uh, Craig Malkin with uh, Rethinking Narcissism and the subconscious or the unconscious elements that are there. I hope this is something that gives you food to think about. And then we'll see you next time uh, when we have more on this subject to discuss. Thank you for listening. Surviving Narcissism is the product of many years of work done by Dr. Les Carter. Dr. Carter is a best-selling author and therapist with more than 40 years of experience, specializing in anger management and narcissistic personality disorder. You can find more content from Dr. Carter on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Surviving Narcissism, as well as on his website, survivingnarcissism.tv. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We are so glad to have you on Team Healthy.